Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we're speaking with Carrie English. Carrie, I originally met her when she won Writers of the Future Volume 31, but she has since become a Hugo and Campbell nominee, and she's been published in Granville Gazette, Daily Science Fiction, and Galaxy's Edge. She's also the first reader for Writers of the Future. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me. So, I rarely do this, but I've actually titled this particular episode, Do's, Don'ts, and WTF. You can fill in what that is, I'm sure. This is on the subject of submitting stories to the writers of the future. And we're here at the Writers Workshop Week right now, and I'm so happy I'm able to actually see and talk with, you know, right across from her now as we talk about this. But it's something she wanted to really be able to communicate as well, so that will save you some undue angst and uh, frustration about what am I supposed to do on submitting something to the contest. So let's just get right into it, Carrie. Um, since it was your amazing story idea of this, uh, of this topic, um, we got do's, don'ts, and WTF. All righty. Well, the goal of this particular podcast is to cut down on the number of stories that we have to reject. Nobody likes to get rejections. We don't like to give them, and we're certain that writers don't like to get rejected. So hopefully by presenting the do's, the don'ts, and the WTFs, we can show you some types of stories that we definitely want to see, some types of stories that we'd rather not see, and some, why did you submit this to us? Alrighty. <laughs> All right. So the list for the do's is short and easy. The most important one is to read the submission guidelines. You have to click that you've read them before you submit your story, but I have a feeling that some people gloss over them and click the box. There are several types of stories that we don't accept, and your story needs to be formatted in certain ways, and all of that is laid out in the submission guidelines. I will get to the don'ts for those in just a little bit. But number one, please read the submission guidelines and follow them. Um, another do is that you will do the best if you have read several of the stories from recent volumes. And when I say recent volumes, I mean volume 29 forward, where David Farland took over as the coordinating judge. That will help you learn Dave's tastes, because even though I'm the first reader, Dave is the person who selects the stories to be finalists. So if you can read even two or three stories from volume 29 forward, that will give you an idea of what we're looking for. It will, you can pick and choose. You can read only the fantasy stories or only the sci-fi stories or only the genre-bending stories. So pick out whatever kind of story you want to write and find some of those in the published volumes and read them before you submit. So another do is that typically a first reader only reads the first two to four pages of a story before making a decision whether to pass it up or whether to reject it. And so in those first two to four pages, I want to see an interesting character, I want to see an interesting setting, and I want to see an interesting problem. And the faster you do it, the better. Some people can get it all in on page one. 
but you have two to four pages to get all three of those in. So character, setting, problem. And it needs to be a speculative fiction situation. So by the end of two to four pages, it needs to be clear to me that this is a speculative fiction story. It's sci-fi, it's fantasy, or it's some other variety of speculative fiction. So some examples that would be like alternate history? Alternate history would work. Now, how's it going to, when you get into fantasy, you've got the dark fantasy, and I know that dark fantasy is definitely something that, you know, we accept. How dark can the fantasy go? So... It needs to stay within about a PG-13 rating if it were a movie. We typically don't like a whole lot of splatter gore. Um, so if there's violence, yes, there can be violence. Let's have it be a little understated. We don't want blood splashed over all of the pages. Um, we don't want guts hanging out. We've had some submissions that are sort of like Blackbeard the Pirate type stories um, with a lot of torture, and that type of story isn't going to work for us, even if it is a speculative story. It will just be too dark. So right. you can you can do dark fiction just on the lighter end of dark. Okay, good. Alrighty. Another thing to do is stick the landing. So before I pass a story to Dave, I will read your opening and your ending. And sometimes the story has a great opening. And I'm sure that I'll be, I will be sending the story to Dave, but I never give a story to Dave without checking the ending. And so sometimes the story, I love the beginning, but the ending doesn't work. Um, and so sometimes a story gets rejected, even with a good opening, because they didn't stick the landing. So make sure you stick your landing. Um, so that, so as, I mean, you're talking like, of course, I know what that means. But the person listening to us, like, stick the landing. So that means make sure it's consistent with the opening, or does it mean that it's got to be something that's very obviously it's an end, or that it's sequitur, or what does that mean with stick the landing? Let's see. Okay, so um, this is more of a don't, but for instance, if the ending involves a self-sacrifice that saves the lives of other people in the story, that's okay. But if the ending is, I'm so horrified at what I've become that I'm going to off myself, and the, the end, if the ending is a suicide, we don't do suicide stories. Heroic self-sacrifice, yes, but depressing fatalistic suicide, no. So the ending doesn't necessarily have to be predictable, but it's almost like you're listening to a symphony. And if the symphony, you know, it comes to this high point and then you get a rousing conclusion and it feels like it ended, that's sticking the ending. If it feels like there's one instrument off playing in the corner still that maybe doesn't know <laughs> like the, the piece has finished, that sometimes happens where we think the writer didn't quite know how or where to end the story and so you're not really sure, is this the end of the story, or did they just not submit all of the pages? Mm. Um, so make sure that we know it's ended and yeah. make it a good ending. Got we it. do tend to prefer upbeat endings. You don't have to do an upbeat ending, but we do prefer those. Got it. All righty. And another thing to do is to incorporate hooks. 
And hooks are these little teasers in your prose that give readers clues to what kind of story it will be. Um, Here's an example of a hook that is a favorite of David Farland's. It's already been used in his story, so you can't use this one. It's just an example. And the story is a sci-fi romance. And the opening line says something to the effect of that the characters met twice. Once before the end of the world and once long after. So the hook there is the idea that these characters met after the end of the world that creates curiosity in the reader. Mm-hmm. And it gives you just this little teaser that makes you want to read further in the story. So use some hooks. And David Farland actually has some good resources. If you were to Google David Farland and writing hooks, you would find some lessons by David Farland on writing hooks. So incorporate some hooks. Got it. All right. That's, those are the basic do's. So are we ready to move on to the don'ts? Well, just in terms of the do's, let's... let's um just a few questions on that. Sure. So now on on submitting, because there's been, like right now we just finished a pandemic, or fingers across we just finished, or we are wrapping up on a pandemic. So there's been, I noticed in volume 37 about where I released, there's a, and 38, the stories seem to be a little bit more upbeat. I know my own thing, I've, I mean, I see a lot of news and I get that, part of the regular intake of stuff. And so I'm not necessarily interested in um, just more doom and gloom, you know. So in terms of do's, I'm talking from the point of, of perspective of do's rather than a don't. Is it something that with Rise of the Future, because I mean, I enjoy the fact that it's, it, it's celebrate writing. It's, it's celebrating writing. It's celebrating something that also is appropriate for middle school on up. That's one thing that's it's important for us. So is it a do to... To not stick with, you know, the current um, climate of wherever it is. Like when, you know, whatever's happening, something, some local news or some local thing happens, like a volcano goes off and now all of a sudden everybody's going to write volcano stories or here we've gotten all the pandemic stories. Or, is it a do then to like, I, I, you know, I'm trying to pose this so it's, so it's keeping it as a do and not as a don't. Um, what would be the do on like the types of stories to submit? And that's going to be complicated because writers can come up with so many different kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid I might have to phrase that as a don't. Okay. If your story is has to do with very recent events in the real world, um, especially political elections, it's probably not going to do well in the contest. We have had to reject stories that have the names of real world political figures in them, even though the story is fiction simply because we don't publish political fiction. Um, So that would be a don't. And yes, if you're basing your story off of a recent current event, such as a volcano or the launch of a a spaceship um, or, you know, the who went into space on that spaceship, whether it was a, a billionaire or a TV star, we're going to have lots of those stories. And it takes away a little bit from the originality of the story mm-hmm. when it is so tightly connected to a real-world event. So, for example, we've had lots and lots of coronavirus stories. And, unfortunately, they tend not to be very original. Now, <laughs> if you wanted to write a story about a pandemic, that's different. 
But if the pandemic is named the Roncana virus, then we're right back to being not very original. Yeah, Mars Shadow from a few years ago. Yes, yes. So yeah, I would I would take inspiration from current events, yes, but brainstorm until they're not so tightly tied to whatever the event is, so that I might not even realize, oh, that was a coronavirus story? Okay, wow. I, I would like at least to be surprised mm-hmm. if I were to learn that it was tied to a certain event. Got it. So use it as a jumping off point, but don't stick tightly to it. Okay. Okay, good. So I'm done with my dues. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alrighty, so let's talk about the don'ts. I would say that roughly 10% of the stories have the author's name on them. And our stories need to be judged anonymously. So unfortunately, if you leave your name on your story, it's an instant rejection. Um, It's really more of a disqualification. Now, you can resubmit the story in the next quarter, but you must take your name off of it. And that includes your email. If your email address is my name at gmail.com, that counts. Right. Um, so don't leave your name on your story. And if you get a rejection for a story that you thought was absolutely amazing, check your manuscript, because if you left your name on it, that's why we rejected it. So, and this, these are examples of the things that are in the submission guidelines. Right. So um, the contest is a short story contest and the short stories have to be speculative fiction short stories. And so some of the don'ts are don't send us novels. We're not a novel contest. We have a word limit for the contest at 17,000 words. Now, if you submit a 17,005 word story, we probably won't instantly reject it. But if you send 18,000 or 246,000, or 500,000, which I've seen. Um, That's a novel, and sometimes it's even a set of novels. We can't judge your trilogy. We're not that kind of contest. So no novels and no sets of novels. Got it. We also don't take screenplays, even if they're science fiction or fantasy screenplays. We don't accept poetry, and we don't accept novel excerpts. And I want to be specific here because Patrick Rothfuss won the contest with a story that was taken from one of his novels. And so I think that has led people to submit excerpts from their novels. And I want to tell you his secret. His secret was that he picked a part of his novel where his main character was on the road. He was journeying from one place to another. And the events that took place in his story because it was on the road, it wasn't tied to other places in the story. It wasn't tied to other events in the story. So it was encapsulated and it felt like its own short story. Mm -hmm. When we see novel excerpts, sometimes it's literally the first three or four chapters of their novel and it doesn't end. It's fairly obvious that they've sent us the first four chapters and, you know, they, they leave the characters at a campfire somewhere and... Yeah, we can't we can't judge that. That's not a short story. Right, it's got so, to have a full arc. Right, it has to have a full arc. So if you can do a full arc in 17,000 words or less, and it is part of your novel, yes, you can send it. But if we can tell that this was ripped out of somebody's novel and it's not really a full story, um, it will probably get rejected. Yeah, when I, when I spoke to Pat about that, and it was actually, it was a chapter, 
And when he made it the, the short story of The Road to Levenshire, it actually got rewritten a bit so that it made it a story. He just didn't like excise a, a chapter. He, he, he took that chapter, like you were saying, but he, he turned it into a short story so that it was his own thing. Because when I tried to include that story in a later, more recent volume uh, of Writers of the Future, he said no because it would be confusing because it was just it was a special thing he did for this, but the book itself was different enough that it would have been confusing. So, so, so his editor said no, we'd rather not. Yeah. Alrighty. So we also cannot accept already published work. So I have actually gotten novels, which is already something we can't accept, but they are clearly formatted for trade paperback and the ISBN is still on them. <laughs> so <laughs> folks, we can't accept already published work, even if it's a short story, but it's already been published somewhere. The contest is for unpublished work only. Let's see what else. Um, ah, this is a short story contest and it's a speculative fiction short story contest. So we can't accept essays or memoirs um, we can't accept any nonfiction. So if you have written an opinion article, it's not a good fit for the contest. It's going to be rejected. So please send us speculative fiction short stories and only speculative fiction short stories that have not been published anywhere else. I got it. All righty. Now, we're a speculative fiction contest. So this means that every story has to have some sort of speculative fiction element. It has to have an element of science fiction or an element of fantasy, something that is simply not part of the real world that we call consensual reality. So your story has to have a speculative element. We get romance submissions that are actually, they're good romances. Mm -hmm. If we were a romance contest, that story would be competitive. But it's a romance set entirely in the real world without any speculative element whatsoever. So we can't accept non-speculative stories. I've also seen literary fiction that, uh, that appears to be set in absolutely the real world with no speculative element. And it doesn't matter how good it is, if it's not a speculative fiction short story, we can't accept it. So right. that will be rejected. All righty. Ah, fan fiction or anything with characters or worlds that don't belong to you. Um, I can't accept your Harry Potter slash fic, I'm sorry. And while there are some worlds, such as Sherlock Holmes, if it's dated before a certain episode, you run into a problem there with originality, that even if it's no longer under copyright, we would rather see you give us something that's set in a world you created with characters you created, rather than using someone else's characters, regardless of copyright. So send us something that's fully original. Now, there was a, a point in that uh, John Haas, a few years ago, had his story with uh, Cthulhu was the, uh, the bad guy, the big bad guy. And I actually read it. He wrote a whole novel, too, subsequent to that. That was, you know, that he took that short story and then it novelized the whole thing, went back a little bit earlier to what led to that doctor going on to this, this maiden voyage of this huge ship that sank after it hit a... a what we, were, we thought was always an iceberg. It was actually Cthulhu <laughs> that sank it. So how does that fit in there? Because that seems like right in the edge of, because it's Cthulhu, that was uh, written by H.P. Lovecraft. So how does that work? If, if the subject matter is out of copyright, 
And if you think you have got such an original take that that you're willing to stack your story up against 100% created worlds that don't borrow from someone else's intellectual property, then go ahead and send it in. It was a brilliant story. It was, right. it was like a total surprise. Me. Yes. Like, whoa. So it is, it is technically possible to win the contest with a piece of intellectual property like that that started with someone else. But it has to be out of copyright, and you have to be really, really good. Yeah, which so, that was. Yes, that yes. was. So, so while it is possible, it's risky. Good. So that then actually, um, another question in the whole subject of mashups, <laughs> because that kind of like was that you've got, you know, the big bad guy at the end is Cthulhu, even though it's not like Lovecraft, you know, where it was just like in your face. It was just like you see what it is at the end, and the sinking of the Titanic. You know, so these two stories, he just did a mashup on it. It was, it was brilliant what he did. I was like totally surprised. How does that come across to you as a first reader? I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, obviously, it has to be done well. Right. But especially, I think what worked there is that it's, you, it's unexpected things. Because who would who would think yeah. that the Titanic sank because of Cthulhu? Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, I kind of do want to. I, I kind of do want to read that. Okay, yeah. let's let's see what you got. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm in favor of mashups. Okay. Good. Alrighty. Okay. So because our books are pitched to libraries in middle schools and high schools, we would like stories that don't have anything that would exceed a PG-13 rating. So in particular, this means no erotica, no sex on the page. Um, There are also limitations for profanity. If you have F-bombs in your story, we're going to ask you to take them out. So my personal opinion is that you might as well not even put them in because we're going to ask you to take them out. Right. Now, I'm not going to reject a story because it has one. I'm not going to reject it because it has two or four or five, but there is a number somewhere. Um, I used to keep track of the story that had the most F-bombs. And I think I got up to 65 in a single story before I just decided to stop tracking. Um, so do be careful with language you will probably be asked to remove F-bombs and S-bombs. So it's not that you can't use any. It's that if you do use them, use them very sparingly and be willing to take them out upon request if you should win. Yeah, since I'm the one that asked it to be taken out, the um, I mean, I'm the one that gets the emails from mothers who say, this is supposed to be PG-13, this is supposed to be appropriate for middle school. You've got profanity in there. And it's just... At that point, it becomes um, false, you know, presentation on my part. And my experience is, and I've experienced this also just from reading a lot of of the fiction that, like that Owen Hubbard wrote. You can get you can get a lot of of great excitement, a lot of uh, intrigue. You can even get someone who's really seriously upset, but you don't have to then use, you know, the f bomb over and over again to, to convey that upsetness. There's lots of ways you can actually do it. And that's one thing that's fun about some of the old Pulp Fiction stories just in general, what they're able to use on, on language. And so many of the, of, the, um, of the words that are used now are actually created to avoid profanity. You know? So some people can actually you know, look at that. And just I mean, there's some characters which 
that's all they can say because that's that personality. All they know is to be able to say the F-bomb every third word. That maybe isn't a type of story that would be appropriate for the contest in the first place. Right. All righty. So we do accept horror, but it has to be speculative horror. Um, so, for instance, we wouldn't accept a serial killer story, no matter how good it is, if there is no speculative element. So if you're submitting horror, please make sure that it is speculative horror. Got it. All righty. Another don't is we don't accept manuscripts that are not in standard manuscript format. And when I say that, standard manuscript format, those are all three capitalized words, and you can Google that to find out what it is. And it has to do with double spacing. It has to do with the font you use. And the reason standard manuscript format exists is to make it easy for the reader, for the editor to read. Um, and it used to have to do with how it would translate from the printed page in submission to the printed page in publication. And with the advent of so many online publications and ebooks, the second part is no longer so important, but the first part is definitely important. Um, but if I use my script font, it looks so, it looks so like professional because that's why I went learned how to do it in school, write scripts. So if I use that really nice, pretty script font, doesn't that make it easier? It doesn't. It makes it much harder. It makes it, it, it takes longer to read. And especially the farther you deviate from standard manuscript format, the more likely it is to be rejected without being read at all. So if you use a slightly non-standard font, or if you forgot to double space it, it's not an auto, it's not an automatic reject. But if you use a black background with bold letters where you somehow made it rainbow, um, on the so that the letters are all different colors and uh, yeah, I'm not going to read that. Um, it it hurts my eyes and I'm already reading more than a hundred manuscripts in a sitting, so it needs to be in some reasonable facsimile to standard manuscript format. Um, definitely no on the black and purple backgrounds okay. um, with the glowing green text because I've gotten those two. Wow. Alrighty, um, stories with artwork included. Usually. I will just gloss over the artwork and read the opening of the story. The problem with having stories that have artwork included is we have no idea where you got that artwork, and we're not going to be able to reproduce it anyways. Um, so if the story is relying on the artwork, if the story is about the picture, we can't publish that. And so that will most likely be rejected. Got it. The only exception is I have one story right now that had a fantasy map included. Now, we probably won't be able to publish the fantasy map should it win, but I'm not going to reject that one for having a fantasy map included. But for the most part, we get what I think are web fiction stories where they have picked out pictures of celebrities or pictures of somebody that they think looks like their characters, or they've picked out an image that conveys the mood of the story, mm -hmm. and I would like them to not submit the picture part. Just, just give me the story and put it in standard manuscript format. Got it. All righty. Um, anything that qualifies as a manifesto, whether it's 300 pages of your political beliefs or 300, you see the, the manifesto ones, they tend to be a couple hundred pages. So if it's 
you know, your theory about who killed JFK and aliens are involved and you did it as a story, that's one thing. But if it's a 300-page manifesto about anything, first, it's too long, and second, there's a difference between a manifesto and a story, and I need to be certain that the author knows the difference. So I got on the manifesto, Carrie. So just for, for those who don't know, I'm just going to define it so we can make sure that they can think with what we're, we're talking about when you, when you say no manifestos. It's a public declaration of policy and aims, especially one issued before an election by a political party or candidate. And it's, um, it's from um, Italian, from uh, mid-17th century, from Latin to make public, and from uh, earlier, obvious, so as in manifest. So anyway, so we're talking about stories then, or would be wannabe stories that are really instead a manifesto. Yes, yes. And so if I am concerned that this is the next Unabomber who is presenting the background for his beliefs for, for why he's done whatever, that's it's not a story. And if it's over our length limit, it's over our length limit. So no manifestos, please. Okay, good. Alrighty, so shall we move on to WTF? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, we're just we're about halfway through right now, so this is this has been great because this is things that on social media I get these requests. Can I do this? Can I do that? So I, now I've got this. When this goes up, I can just send this link to them so they can listen. Here's here's the answer to your question in very good thorough detail. Alrighty. So for WTF, we have a list of the strangest things that I have seen submitted to this contest. Um, I received an Amtrak ticket once. Obviously, it was only an image of an Amtrak ticket. And there was no text aside from what was on the ticket. There was no explanation. It wasn't uh, like, oh, this is the Amtrak ticket that my character used and this is what they were. No, it was just an Amtrak ticket. It was for a future date. It was by the time I got to the story, the, the Amtrak ticket um, was about two weeks in the future. Um, I don't remember exact, I don't remember the destination, but it either started or ended in Emeryville, California. So please do not send Amtrak tickets. Okay, good. Um, now, space shuttle tickets, maybe we can talk, but, but no Amtrak tickets, no, Amtrak. no plane tickets. Okay, yeah, good. No. Okay. I once received a pharmacy invoice. And I'm not talking about a CVS receipt, which I think probably would violate our length guidelines, but I'm <laughs> talking about um, a large purchase of a couple hundred dollars worth of items you would find at a pharmacy, such as 12 tubes of athlete's foot cream. And Bizarre. And, yes, bizarre. And you see, with some of these WTFs, I have no idea what the person was thinking. Did they misclick? Did they click the wrong file? I don't know. Is that how I ended up with an Amtrak ticket? Or did they think that maybe this was a random drawing out of everything that got submitted so it didn't really matter if they sent a story? Um, yeah, I, these, these are just w, WTFs. Yeah. Why is this here? Chemistry homework on graph paper with formulas and, and no words. So, yeah, please don't send me your chemistry homework. Um, English homework, it shouldn't have your name and your teacher's name and your period on it, but um, English homework only if it's an actual story. I've gotten English homework that looks like 
the assignment was probably, tell me your most vivid memory. Um, so that's not speculative. But English is at least closer to what we're doing than chemistry. So please, please don't send <laughs> your chemistry track. homework. Yes, yes. okay, good. Yes. Um, high school transcripts. We don't accept high school transcripts. They're, well, maybe they tell a story, but they're not a short story. And we would hope that they are not speculative fiction. Um, so what is a high school transcript? A list of all the classes they've taken with their GPAs. Oh, okay. So I actually have a guess there. The contest is sometimes marketed as a scholarship. Right. And so sometimes I get essays that are scholarship essays. Um, sometimes they're hardship essays. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're what I would like to do with my life essays. Um, but unfortunately, because they're not short stories, we can't consider them. Um, and also, uh, we, we don't take transcripts. Right. So, yeah. yep, no high school transcripts. Um, I've gotten an ecology word search where it's, you know, a, a square of random letters and you're supposed to find words like biome and all of that in it. Um, <laughs> find my story in here. <laughs> yes. And I actually have a theory about those as well. I think that sometimes teachers give credit, extra credit for entering the contest. And of course, the teacher can't see what the student entered. So probably the student has to submit the electronic receipt where we say, congratulations, your story's been entered in Writers of the Future. And I think maybe the student was cutting some corners and said, well, my teacher doesn't know what I submitted. All they know is that I submitted something. So click, there goes my chemistry homework or click, there goes my ecology word search. So yeah, no ecology word searches. Right. All righty. Ah, yes. Um, you may not submit War and Peace, all 957 pages, even if it is, as you say, your own translation. Yes, someone submitted a 957-page version of War and Peace. Wow. So, yeah. All righty. I think that pretty much covers the WTFs. Ooh, shall we do some in, some openings that don't really work? Yeah, I think that'd be really, really good. Because um, we're just, since we're hitting like, Guys, listen to this thing here because, you know, you're now hearing it straight from the, the source point of who's going to be looking at what you're submitting. And so if you're sincere about this thing, I don't, I don't want to say if you're sincere about it, but just to avoid that unnecessary hiccup to getting your, your story submitted, let's just deal with these things. That will be an automatic um, non-starter for you so you can actually get a chance to... to to have your story read by the judges. Alrighty. So what I'm going to cover here are openings that don't really work. Now, they're not instant rejects because some of these openings might get you an honorable mention if they're done particularly well. But they're openings that are going to limit your success in the contest to, I would say, a maximum of maybe an honorable mention. Okay. Alrighty. So waking up. Many, many stories start with a character waking up. And it is done so often that while it isn't an instant reject, it's almost an instant reject. Um, whatever it is that made you start with your character waking up, go somewhere farther down in their day. Start closer to the action. And there are a couple of different versions of the waking up opening. 
One of them is the sci-fi version, where the character is woken up because they've been knocked out of their bunk by some type of jolt, and they think, what hit us? Or they are woken up by a klaxon, like red alert. And so many people start their story this way, that it's it's one of those things that's just, it's not very original. Find some other way to start your story. The rest of the story might be okay, but if you start it with waking up, not only will it have a poorer chance here, it's going to have a poorer chance at the professional magazines that you would hope to publish it in. So don't start your story with the character waking up. Got it. Ah, waking up, this is the high school version. Um, so mom calls up the stairs get up. And the main character rolls over, hits the snooze button, um, eventually gets up. They brush their teeth. They put on some clothes. As they put on clothes, they're describing themselves in the mirror. They go downstairs. By the time they get downstairs, we're probably past the two-page mark. And then they eat breakfast, and the breakfast is one of two things. It's either cereal or toast. I don't know why it's those two, but it's always cereal or toast. Um, could I at least have a Pop-Tart? Could, what, why isn't it oatmeal? Um, and then they run out the door late, and they're usually headed to school. I mean, so, Ripple Stiltskin didn't yes. wake up with, <laughs> with that stuff, so... yeah. So that's, that's the high school version. And the problem with that kind of waking up story is that it takes two to four pages and nothing particularly interesting happens. And usually that, the way that story continues is they get to school, they meet their friends, they talk about um, whatever they're going to talk about for a little bit, and then they go to class. And sometimes what we would call the inciting event for the story it might not happen till lunchtime, but we've got by now eight to ten pages of regular high school life where I have, I have. There's nothing speculative in the story so far. Maybe, maybe something happens, but yeah, don't don't do waking up. And if I see toast, I'm out. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, the Star Trek opening. Now, this particular opening is a little bit risky because it's not that original, but if it's done well, you can probably get an honorable mention out of it. So we call it the Star Trek opening because typically we open on the bridge of a ship and, you know, the captain is there, the rest of the bridge crew are there, and, and something is going on and the first words out of the captain's mouth are going to be either battle stations or damage report. So, I love Star Trek. I started watching Star Trek when I was five years old, and um, tip, my very first crush was on Astro Boy. My second crush was on Mr. Spock. So, I love Star Trek. Got it. <laughs> but the Star Trek opening is overdone. We see it a lot. And if you've written what I would call a, a standard Star Trek-ish story, it's not in the Star Trek world officially, but it's an episodic space exploration style story. And you've done a decent job. You might get an honorable mention because that fiction is out there. It has a following. It sells. Mm -hmm. But we want original stuff. We want new and different. Uh, we do want to explore brave new worlds, but kind of in some different way than Star Trek did it. So if you're using the Star Trek opening, just be aware of it. 
and mm-hmm. maybe try to open a little differently or try to make your space exploration story different somehow, make it more original. The wandering or meandering opening. So this one starts with a character thinking. They could be sitting on a rock thinking. They could be riding their horse thinking. They could be walking down a road thinking. But that's all they're doing is thinking. (laughs) And it goes on for more than two pages, and we get to page three or four, and they're still just thinking. Um, Don't use the, the thinking opening. We need something to actually be happening rather than just the characters in their head and their thinking. Right. And they're usually thinking about backstory kind of stuff. So that's the, we call it the wandering opening or the meandering opening. And there's a version of that that's the it reminded me of opening. And these ones, they usually have a great first paragraph. And the first paragraph pulls me in and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a good one. And then the character they, they smell something or they see something and they say, well, it reminded me of that time 20 years ago when my father or whatever the event is. And then they spend several pages doing backstory and it's an info dump. Right. And so, you know, you got me excited that I was going to get a good story here. But then we spent a couple of pages in backstory or info dump and we're not getting to what, you know, this char- it has to be a character in a setting with a problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the main conflict of this story is going to be because we're still 20 years ago in the, in the backstory in the info dump. So watch out for it reminded me of, it takes you away from the main action line of the story. Right. Um, it will probably be rejected. So, yeah, watch out for the it reminded me of that happens in the first two pages. Good. All righty. I've got one more. All right. Um, This one we call driving to the story because literally I did have a story where a family is packing to go to the beach. And so there's a mom and a dad and they have to marshal the kids into the car. And do you have your book? Do you have your homework? Do you have this? Do you have that? And they all get into the car and they start driving. And they're they're going to the beach and it's about a 20-minute drive. And by now we're eight pages into the story and the writing was very good or I wouldn't have stayed with it eight pages because there's also no speculative element by now. And I'm going to assume that the speculative element happens at the beach, but they should have started the story at the beach. Instead, they had to drive to the story. So if you have to drive to get to the action of your story, start it later. Skip the part where, oh, the story's way over there on the other side of the freeway. We have to drive to get there. Um, so yeah, start your story close to the inciting incident. Okay. Now I have a question on, on stories writing. So this could be the do or don't or WTF on this one here, but first, second, third person, is there any particular preference or is it just based upon the skill of the author to be able to make something like we had a story a few years ago where what happens every now and then where a person will write something first person. You know, it's very, very rare. And second person, also rare. But in terms of like what you're looking for and not necessarily what's the safest route, but what's the most, the best route to go, especially as you're forming yourself up as a, as a writer. I think that the newer you are to writing, that Perhaps you should stick to some of the more established points of view, which would be first person or third person. Um, 
but there is no official policy and I don't have any personal preferences. Second person is harder to do well. So I think perhaps writers should be aware that if they're trying to do a second person story, they should already have some writing under their belt. Um, They should really know what they're doing and they should be very confident that yes, the story needs to be in second person and I have the skills to pull it off. But again, that has to do with the skill of the author, not with any sort of preference on the part of the contest. I personally have written a story in first person future Mm-hmm. And the story takes place in the space of two minutes entirely inside the character's head while she's laying in bed because she can't sleep. And normally you would say there's no actual action. She lays in bed the whole time and all she's doing is thinking. That story won't work. So it is definitely the case that a good writer can pull off a risky opening or a risky technique. But the reason I say risky is that what you're risking is rejection. If you haven't absolutely nailed it, it will get rejected. Right. Um, and in my case with the story with the unusual uh, point of view, it made the preliminary list for the Bram Stoker Award. It was not a Bram Stoker finalist. It only made the preliminary list. And when the editor who bought it read it, her first comment was, I'm not so sure about this POV. And it was first person future. But she said on a second reading, she said, no, that that was actually exactly the right POV. So if you believe in it and you're using an unusual POV, do it. Um, but be aware that that if it's an unusual POV, there's a, a risk. There's a mm-hmm. higher risk of rejection there. Okay. And then active versus passive in terms of, um, of, of, constru- of construction. I know like on newspapermen, you know, Active voice. You know, when I write my press releases, active voice. What about in, in short stories? Is there a, a preference or is it something you, you weave between them both? Or is there any particular, you know, recommendation or advice you've got on that from your experience with these submissions? In general, active voice. Um, an occasional passive voice sentence is fine. If most of the story is in passive voice and there's not a compelling reason for it, then then it's probably not a story that's going to work very well for us. So in general, active voice. Okay, great. Okay, so now in terms of uh, story submissions, I know it can go up to 17,000 words. We've had one story once probably in maybe it's volume seven, maybe it's volume five, which is one page long when it was printed in, in Writers of the Future. Is there, is there a sweet spot in terms of story length? So in terms of my personal preference, no. But when I was entering the contest before I'd won, I actually surveyed four or five volumes and I calculated the length of all of the winning stories. And so I can tell you, statistically speaking, that the sweet spot is four to 6,000 words. That's where most of the winning stories, that's where they are in terms of length. Um, In recent contest history, the shortest story I know of that won was 2,500 words, and that was Scott Perkins' story. Which, that is a whole separate thing now, too, that story there. Let's talk about that a bit, too, because that was just so unique what he did. Yes. So what he did was that entire story was told in five-word sentences because the being, the the main character, could only think and only speak in five-word sentences. And so... 
not only was it five words per sentence, but the fact that it was 2,500 words was also calculated because it's a multiple of five. And that was that was one of those really cool techniques that is actually very risky because either it's going to work and it's going to be brilliant and you're going to nail it, or it's going to have this weird sing-songy rhythm and no, what are you doing? It's very close to WTF, but that one worked. And so that is definitely an example of where a brilliant writer can, can pull off something that just wouldn't work for a lot of other people. Right. Okay. That's the sweet spot. But then, Mara Shadow with, with Darcy Stone was took it all the way to the limit of 17,000 words with her grand prize winning story. Yes. So when you write a very long story, and I would say a very long story is anything longer than about 10,000 words. For a very long story, simply because of the length, you have more chance to screw something up. You have more opportunities to let the pacing slip, and maybe this one particular area gets a little slow and you lose the interest of the reader. So I personally think it is more difficult to write a long story that holds the reader all the way through. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't accept long stories. Mm -hmm. It just means that you have to demonstrate complete control of your material for double or triple the length of someone who's writing a 5,000-word story. So if you're going to flex and write long like that, you you, you got to stick with it the whole way through. You have to maintain the reader's interest. You have to keep the action up and more power to you. Um, we definitely don't try to disqualify long stories, mm-hmm. um, but they're hard. And Probably if you write very long stories and you notice that you're getting honorable mentions or silver or semi, well, if you get semi, you get a critique. Probably what's happening is that at some point in your long story, the interest waned a little bit. You had a slow patch, and that be, that might be why. Got it. Okay, now with submitting stories, I know that there's, you've talked a couple times, and you've, you yourself went back and and you said, starting with volume 29, or, you know, Kathy Wentworth used to say when she started, she read the first three books over and over and over again to find out what are the judges, what was Al just looking for. Dave Farland says the same thing. I mean, the fact of the matter is these stories, when they finally make it, this really is the best of the best of, of, um, of new voices in speculative fiction. So everybody's going to expect me to say this, you know, buy the books, read them. But a little bit more from yourself so people really understand the importance of reading these stories. What are you looking for? It's not just so you can have, that I can have a book sale, but it's like this really is an audience. It's, it is the best-selling science fiction anthology out there. So a little bit on that now just from your own perspective. Why and what are you looking for when you actually read these stories? Okay, when you read the stories, there are things that we've said even in this podcast. For instance, it has to be PG, PG-13. Okay, well, how much sex is acceptable? So if you really want to get a feel for how much of anything is appropriate for the contest, then reading the stories will give you a better a, a better metric on that than just my telling you that, oh, well, it has to be PG-13. PG for instance, mm-hmm. um, if your story has a lot of heroin and marijuana in it, it'll probably get rejected because we need to be in high schools and we don't want heavy drug use. However... Um, the story by Steve Pantazis yes. um, features 
what you might call a designer drug. It's a sci-fi drug. Okay, well, there's some more leeway there if it's a sci-fi drug and it's not meth or coke or heroin or, or pot. And so for those it depends kind of cases. I can't, I can't tell you every single variation of what is or isn't okay. You learn that by reading the stories in the books. And, you know, if you can't afford to buy them, um, get them from your library. But if you read a couple of stories, you will get a feel for how, uh, do they really like upbeat openings? What if I have a story that's dark but ends upbeat? What, I have, uh, what if I have a story that's just dark? You'll get a feel for that in a much more hands-on, yeah, I know what they're looking for way than just even listening to the podcast. So then on, because I've I've told people too, like, you know, you also, like we have the online writing workshop and that's based on the essays that were written by Owen Hubbard and it has the videos from Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers and David Farland. And that gives you a lot of, again, the, you know, the teaching or this is how to do it but to actually see how it's effectively implemented in the real world. How do you introduce a character? How do you create suspense? How do you, like Wolf Moon says, how do you kill off your darlings? It wasn't his original advice, but he's, he's definitely using that, and it's making a difference. I think it's important that people understand, too, that you get real-life examples of how it actually works, and I think a writer will learn by reading how others have successfully done something that they could then work on doing themselves. Yes. And, you know, the goal of the contest is to train professional writers or writers who are ready to enter the world of professional writers. And so if you were to ask me, well, what's the difference between an Asimov story and an analog story or an Apex story or a Clark's World story? All right, well, if you want to be a professional writer, the way you learn the difference between what's an analog story versus an Asimov story, you need to read the magazine. And so just like you would do if you were trying to target your story to a professional magazine, you should read the the stories in our anthologies because you need to understand the market to which you are submitting. That will help you target, is this a good writers of the future story? So definitely read read the books so that you understand the market just like you would for any other market. We are a market. That makes very good sense. And the fact is that we're now in year 38. We're about ready to release volume 37, and we're starting to put together the book for volume 38. That's nearly four decades of discovering and fostering new talent into the genre and Many of today's top professionals in the industry got their start from the contest. So it's long since gone past its, its having proven itself, you know, that it really delivers what was promised by Mr. Hubbard when he created it in 1983. So before we wrap up here, anything in particular that any key point that you wanted to reiterate as the first reader as a plea? Or yes, <laughs> don't give up. There are only three ways out of this contest. You win, you pro out, or you stop submitting. And you are completely in control of that last one. So keep submitting and don't give up. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Carrie. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify, and it's also been internationally syndicated on the United Public Radio Network. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Carrie. Thank you for having me. 